Gracious Father, I pray that we would desire that all of our days and all of our life would bring glory to you. And Father, whatever pride, whatever uh, selfish uh, self-righteousness is um, polluting our hearts and uh, getting in the way of that thing for which we were made, Father, I pray that your word would root it out, that your law would expose our sin, not to leave us in despair, but so that instead of trying to rest in ourselves, we would rest in and give glory to Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. Um, A few years ago, uh, my good friend, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung, wrote an article called, I Don't Understand Christians Watching Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones uh, was a big-budget television show. It was critically acclaimed and uh, had an enormous amount of graphic content. Uh, and, And Kevin DeYoung received a mountain of criticism against that article, saying he didn't understand why Christians watched Game of Thrones. And he tried to, he wrote another article where he tried to categorize some of those responses that he had received, like, my conscience isn't bothered, or nudity doesn't phase me, stop judging and shaming. I use this to engage my coworkers with the gospel, and the story and artistry outweigh the bad scenes. His final verdict was this, we are so awash in sensuality that many Christians have no idea how compromised they've become. Only in a hypersexual, pornographic, saturated culture like ours could we think that graphic sex scenes are no big deal or somehow offset by a brilliant screenplay. As Kevin DeYoung points out, this is not an isolated problem. We can become so caught up, so involved in our culture, which is worshiping pleasure and entertainment, that we ourselves can feel entitled to something as insignificant as a television show. We can see anyone disagreeing with something which we so clearly have a right to as being some kind of puritanical religious zealot. We are so regularly breathing in the air of the world around us. There is this constant pressure that being normal means we have to think that what they love is good. That we have to at least try and figure out whether their idols will satisfy us. We have to let their treasures pull at our wills just enough to fit in so that we can agree with them in some measure with what is good and true and beautiful until eventually we're going to find ourselves defending behavior that we would otherwise have seen as grotesque and even hating someone who would try and correct us. In our passage this morning, Isaiah is going to speak to an audience that is just so powerfully pressured by the influential cultures around them. The people of Judah have become a vassal state under empires like Assyria and Babylon and Persia. They were taken from their homes, they were assimilated into those cultures, and then they were brought back essentially as a province in someone else's empire. Whatever excuses we have about giving in to cultural pressure, 
it would be hard to compete with those exiles and the people who returned home. How entitled would they have been to say that they needed to go along just a little to get along? They needed to compromise just a little to cooperate with their neighbors who were opposing them, who were always oppressing them. Wouldn't it have been nice, after the way that they'd been treated, after how scorned and mocked they were, wouldn't it be nice to have a right to just a little bit of the pleasure and the wealth that those empires are enjoying? God sees how blind this people has become to their own danger. And through Isaiah, God shocks them to try and see how their cultural compromise has become serious sin. So let's look at Isaiah 57, beginning with verses 1 to 13. Isaiah 57, verses 1 to 13. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent of these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil. You multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent them even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it was hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Isaiah's central goal here is to try and expose this people to themselves and then evaluate what it would be just for God to do with such a people. You can see the people of Judah, they're not just living in the cultural climate around them, but they're starting to idolize it. They're starting to yearn for what they have. They're starting to seek favors, offering their gifts to the cultures around them. They have pursued those things that the nations love. They're sending off envoys to kings with gifts to try and curry their favor. There are hints here that they have imitated the nations even in terrible ways. Meanwhile, the righteous people of Israel, the ones who are trying to hold them account to God's word, the ones who are trying to warn them of the danger they're in, are becoming fewer and fewer. It's implied that it's likely even through conflict that some of them are being removed from God's people. But it's clear that the general populace is, if anything, quite happy 
that these stuck-up, prudish people are going away. Isaiah says, who have you been mocking? Who have you been sticking your tongue out at? They're so sick of the righteous people. They're sick of their entreaties. They're sick of hearing that God's law condemns the things that they've been doing. They have become so arrogant about their sin that they are ready to mock anyone who would say, I think that God's word tells me that what you are doing is wicked. This pattern might seem sadly familiar to some of us. You can think of a church, you can think of a group of churches, or even a self-styled religious movement that says that it cares deeply about God's word, that says that they are holding to it against the whims of culture, and they don't suddenly turn around and reject it, but what they do is they just slowly become so disinterested in it. They become interested in other things. They still say, we are God's people, we love God, we care about his will, Maybe they even love the Bible, but they just care less and less about what God's word would say about their lives. They care less and less about letting it correct them, letting it, uh, letting it lead them, until eventually you will find them mocking and despising anyone who would try and correct them with God's word, happy if those people would go away. I remember a private meeting once with a denominational leader who was also the head of a um, uh, a, a Christian Bible college that many of us would know about, presented with a, a problem from God's word that went against what he wanted. And I remember him laughing and saying, should we drag Moses out here to solve this for us? We can't do that, can we? What causes this destructive decline? Isaiah tells us it doesn't happen in a vacuum People of Judah didn't consciously choose, today is the day that we will reject God. Today is the day that we will no longer be his people. They chose to cling to something else. It's not that they chose not to fear God's judgment, but God was patient. God was gracious with them while the world pressured them and they chose to fear something else. They chose to look at the pressure of the world around them and say, that is what I'm going to fear. God says, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied, so you did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Eventually, these people are mocking the warnings of the righteous, and yet they are filled with dread about the opinions of the people around them. The righteous people clearly have nothing they want anymore. They don't want to be like them. They don't want to have what those people can offer. They're not afraid of what they're warning against. But the world controls the things that their hearts really desire. They are the ones who have the things that I want. Reputation, income, pleasure, stuff, whatever it is. This is what's happening in Judah. They're becoming increasingly afraid of men who don't love God because men who don't love God have the things that they love. They're still claiming to be in covenant with God, but their love is shifting to worldly things, and they're increasingly ready not just to be afraid of them, but thus to start giving their affection to them, to start trying to impress them, to try to be like them, because they have the things that the people of Judah really desire. Isaiah gives a very disturbing analogy for this. He calls it prostitution. Judah is a wife who pays homage to her marriage. Yes, I love my relationship with God. Yes, I love my marriage. But increasingly is expecting her husband to look the other way while she gives her affections to anyone who has what she desires. You have what I want. You have what I want. Let me go to you. She sets up her bed on a mountaintop. All discretion is gone. Who has, who has what I want? 
She's increasingly looking at things that God is forbidden. She's crying out to anyone, who wants to come here? This is how God sees a heart that has exchanged the love of him for the love of this world. James sums this up when he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Isaiah is trying to shock this people. You do not see how dire your situation has become. They're still so proud of their identity. They're still the children of Abraham. They excuse their sin. It was necessary. We're in a very difficult cultural context. Or they say, well, my sin is very private. The compromises that I've made, the things that I've done, I keep them very carefully hidden away. There is no way that they're going to have a negative effect on anyone else. There's no way that they're going to affect my reputation. They think that at least externally, they still at least look a great deal better than these worldly people that they're trying to impress. I'm not doing all the things that they're doing. I'm just doing the things that I have to. Isaiah warns, your affections show that you are not the children of Abraham. He calls them sons of the sorceress and offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? Who are you to criticize righteous people and people who love God's word? Remember Paul telling the Romans To be a child of Abraham was never about your blood and your DNA. It was the question of whether or not you had the faith of Abraham. Jesus similarly warned the Pharisees, you keep calling yourselves children of Abraham while you reject the Messiah and reject all of God's word that is pointed to him. You are sons of the devil. Lie because you lie as he lies. Their hearts and actions show who they are. Isaiah is doing the same thing here. You can't simply point to your tradition. You can't point to your family. You can't point to your good works. You can't point to a confession you made in the past and ignore everything that your heart and actions are saying about who you are and what you believe right now. Isaiah says sorcery, adultery, deceit. That is who you are. This is what you love. He says, you don't belong in God's temple. You belong in the valleys of sacrifice where the Gentiles go. That's where you spend your time. He says, you journeyed to the king with oil. You multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off. You sent down even to Sheol. This is referring to their going off, searching for favor for foreign kings. But the word for king here is very similar to the word for Moloch a Canaanite deity to whom the Gentiles sacrifice their children. Isaiah says, this desperation to gain favor with foreign people has turned them into people pandering to foreign gods, not just traveling to far off places, traveling to the pit of hell to try and get what they desire. This is where you are going. This is what you desire. This is where you belong. And Isaiah says, this has invited the worst kind of perversion You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Isaiah notes the terrible extent of their sin, constant, uncontrollable lust, and even the slaughter of children. Now, obviously, all of this takes place in the context of worshiping idols, but Isaiah doesn't talk about the context here. He talks about the sin that this has led to. So once again, we can sadly relate to this horrible extent of sin 
in the culture around us. And we can also relate to how churches have become ambivalent to this sin and even advocates for it in desperation to cling to this world. It shouldn't be surprising that our supposedly atheistic society has gone back to the exact same sins of the Moloch worshipers. Our fallen nature hasn't changed. There are just new avenues to get to the same place. Now we talk about a moral obligation for people to fulfill their unique sexual preferences without consequences. We're so concerned that everyone has a right to enjoy physical satisfaction and to enjoy actualization that we have to promote and advocate for whatever they say that they desire. And then we have to promote and advocate for the killing of children who were too young and vulnerable to advocate for themselves so that people can continue to pursue their pleasures and actualize their dreams without consequences. This is the utter depths of the insanity of sin. This is where our idols sexual pleasure and self-actualization have led us. We should never be less than shocked at this sin. Numbness to the shocking nature of this sin was part of Judah's problem. We should be shocked about the sexual revolution, about the prevalence of abortion, at the way that people have tried to advocate for it, even in the name of God. We should be shocked so that we also then might be watchful of how these same idols can come into our lives from the world around us. How we can fall prey to on-demand physical satisfaction or the right to self-actualization. It is so easy for those idols to creep into our hearts as well. They make us numb to growing sin because we think that satisfying our desires is something we have a right to. That pursuing the identity that we desire for ourselves is something we are entitled to. We pursue those idols until we ourselves maybe look a little bit different than the world but are just as ambivalent to God's word until we might even despise anyone who would use God's word to correct us. Obviously, one very clear way that this has snuck its way into the church is through pornography. This has become pervasive because so many people have given into the world's belief that we absolutely have to satisfy our physical desires whenever we need to. Pornography use penetrates or uh, uh, knowingly perpetuates a culture of prostitution, sexual revolution, abortion, human trafficking. And yet so many people in the church continue to quietly indulge in it because there's nothing we can do. We have a need that has to be filled. If you are refusing to address this sin because its private nature is making you believe that there are no consequences, then today is the day that you will stop hiding you will repent, and in keeping with that repentance, you will choose a mature uh, brother or sister in Christ or an elder to whom you will immediately confess this sin so that you can live in keeping with that repentance. But this warning doesn't end with pornography. The gods of pleasure and self-actualization have invested our culture so thoroughly that it is so easy to find so many ways that we become numb 
to those same idols and their influence on our hearts. The way that we have felt entitled in our marriages. How we define whether or not our marriages are going well based on on whether or not we are getting what we desire. Our entitlement to entertainment until we've become addicted to it or blind to the ways that it is encouraging sin in our own lives. How desensitized we become to consumerism, to coveting what our neighbors have, to getting the things that we think we need to live the lifestyle that we want. The way that we worship celebrities and athletes and people whose jobs just look like fun to us because secretly we would like to have lives that are just as vapid and shallow and lazy. Our love of gossip and slander our refusal to care for the needs of others or take on responsibilities because it interferes with our me time, our pursuit of pleasure. God's word speaks to all of these things. It warns us of these things. And so often we excuse them because our culture has so normalized them because it's the air that we breathe in the world around us. Some of those warnings might seem so shocking that you think that I'm advocating for monasticism. (laughs) We're not supposed to live like monks. We're not supposed to hide from the world. We're not supposed to reject Christian freedom. Talking about real, actual sin, which God has condemned, which we ourselves have become comfortable with because of its prevalence in our culture. Because that has made us believe that we have no other choice. That this is just what a Christian is going to have to look like nowadays. So often we talk about sin as something that happened to us almost against our will. We fell into it again. It was something that that almost sinned against us. We were the chief victims of our own transgression. Like our sin jumped out at us and attacked us like a bear in the woods. This helps us assuage our consciences. We can still identify as God's people while regularly, repeatedly spending our time in sin. The people of Judah were using those same excuses while they were consumed with lust, while they were sacrificing their own children. But Isaiah wakes them up to the reality that far from being victims of their own sin, look at yourselves, you're persevering in it. You journeyed to the king with oil, you multiplied your perfumes, you sent your envoys far off, and you sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of the way, but you did not say it was hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Isaiah tells them, look at the effort you are putting into your sin. Look at the time and the energy you're giving to it. Is there anything else in your lives that you are pouring that passion into, that same dedication The lengths you have gone to to obtain the pleasures of this world, Isaiah says. If this was any other pursuit, you would have given up. You would have said it was hopeless. Yet somehow, when it comes to pursuing the things that the world around you loves, you find the strength and you give it your all like an Olympian going for the gold. Jeremiah takes this same message, it is hopeless, and he turns it in the other direction. Just as we seem to never say it is hopeless to give up pursuing sin, Jeremiah says we immediately throw up our hands when we face any temptation and say it's hopeless to try and be faithful to God. That's where we feel hopeless. You said it's hopeless. For I've loved foreigners and after them I will go. We try to read God's word. Oh, it feels like pulling teeth. We try and pray and we're immediately so distracted. So what do we do? What's the thing to do in that case? Give up. It was too hard. 
God will have to understand that it was too difficult for us. It was hopeless. Talking to the Lord feels awkward and foreign. What was I supposed to do? At church, we try and listen to the sermon, but wow, that sermon was boring. Our singing feels forced. It doesn't feel like it's coming from our hearts. We feel like we've heard it all before. So what do we do? We give up. We stop trying. We say it was hopeless. Maybe we even come to church less. It wasn't our fault. And yet, we are drawn to this worldly behavior, to entertainment, to sin, like magnets. We go on. We stay up late. We take every second we can. We plan for new opportunities. We work hard. We strive. We would never call that hopeless. We look at this contrast and say, somehow this proves my sin is not my fault. The fact that I give up in every righteous endeavor, the fact that I work hard in pursuing the things of the world, somehow this proves that it wasn't my fault. It proves that I'm the victim of my own sin. Have you ever stood back and looked at your own disinterest in the Lord? Have you looked at your own perseverance in sin? Is that why you told yourself it was hopeless? That you had no other choice? Let God's word warn you. Are you confessing that you're a slave to sin? Paul says we will either walk by the spirit or by the flesh. Those who know God are not perfect. But they know what it means to strive and persevere to be like Christ. They know what it is to fight for their holiness with all the energy that God's spirit supplies in them. To not have the spirit is to exert your own effort and you will use it without the spirit to persevere in the things that make us an enemy of God. We are slaves to sin without God. And it's our own will that enslaves us. Throughout this passage, Isaiah weaves a thread and a threat of warning. Judgment is coming. As he reveals the extent of this sin, he says nobody seemed to notice that when the righteous people were dying, that when they were dying out, when they were disappearing, and everyone thought this is making our lives better, that was an act of grace. God was delivering them from incoming calamity. As he recounts their sin, he says, shall I relent of what I'm going to do? As he presents their sin in shocking terms, it is becoming increasingly clear. If you understand this sin, how could you say God should do anything other than bring his judgment against it? God will not be treated like some powerless husband who is expected to look on while his wife constantly gives affection to others. God finally says, after all of his patience, his patience which was meant to give them time to repent but was leading to them not fearing him at all, God finally says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. One day, God will declare their righteous deeds. Which means that he will expose how shallow and hypocritical is every human claim to have been good enough 
despite their sin. You will reveal that there is no action left that will profit you. Our best actions are just a thin covering over hearts that are totally devoted to idols. And Isaiah says, you better hope that those idols can deliver you from God's judgment. You picked them. Did you do so anticipating that you would come out on top when God's judgment comes to take a stand against those idols? If you've chosen in your heart that your deepest love is entertainment, wealth, comfort, pleasure, social standing, then you better have taken into account how much you think those things will benefit you on judgment day. Whether they can protect you from God's wrath. For God's part, he's quite confident that when that day comes, a mere breath is going to blow them all away. This has been a very grim warning. Isaiah exposes sinful hearts condemns our compromise. He tells us judgment is coming. Hopefully the law has done its work. It tears open our hearts. It reveals what is deepest in us. It exposes our secrets. This does not have to be the end. It's not the end for Isaiah. Isaiah says on the other side of God's wrath is Zion. God's land, his everlasting kingdom. And who will pass through this judgment to get there? Well, Isaiah's already talked about the righteous being spared from calamity. So the righteous must be those who didn't compromise. Those who didn't give in to the sins of the world. Those who never worshipped idols. Those whose affections were always wholly true to God, right? That's who gets to survive the judgment. And live with God in Zion. No. God says Zion is for those who hear this warning. Who heed it who see the judgment coming and take their refuge not in their idols, but in God. And suddenly, this prophecy takes a fantastic turn. Let's read verses 14 to 21. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inherits eternity, inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah tells us who God is. He's the God who is high and lifted up, whose name is holy. And based on that previous passage, those titles should be terrifying to us. This is the God who judges our sin. But now we see that God is, by those titles, exerting his high and holy power to prepare a broad way of salvation. He has ordered the removal of every obstacle. He is lowering mountains. He is raising valleys. 
This proclamation of a wide open way of salvation does not remove the prior warning. The last verses of this passage remind us that there is no peace for the wicked, not in this life, not with God, not in eternity. But in spite of this, a proclamation of peace goes out to call those far and near to come to the Lord. This is not a call for those who have never sinned. It's a call to the sinners, to those who have gone off and sent their envoys to kings far away. God has prepared this highway to bring them back. This is a call for faithless sinners, for people who prostituted themselves, for people who killed their children, chased their lusts. It is to them that God says, to you I give a broad, open highway of salvation. And what is more, the God who is high and lifted up doesn't just call us to him, but he says that he will dwell near, come near to us. In this promise, we see God looking forward to the day when he himself, God who is holy and perfect on high and lifted up, who will judge every sin, will leave his throne, will come to earth and take the form of a servant. And he does not come to demonstrate his power of condemnation against those who have sinned against him. He, draw, he comes so he can draw near to them and so that he can comfort them. When Jesus came as a man and walked among us, we heard the main, one of the main charges his opponents brought against him. And what was it? This man spends all of his time in the company of tax collectors and prostitutes. Women who had broken covenant for pleasure. Men who had given over their lives to pursue the treasure of foreign kings. These are exactly the people that Isaiah is warning Exactly the people who have committed the sins that ought to shock us. But they were the ones who were in the company of Jesus. They were the ones to whom he drew near. When the Pharisees became angry that Jesus was spending so much of his time in the company of sinners, Jesus didn't say, oh, I've drawn near to these people because I've changed my mind about sin. I've drawn near to them because I don't care about sin. Because I think that they're actually doing well. No, he said he came to save them. Not just from the wrath that is a consequence of sin, but to save them from sin itself. Who does God draw near to? Sinners who recognize their sin. Who humble themselves and who are contrite. And God draws near not to leave them in that place, but Isaiah says he draws near to revive their hearts. To regenerate them to make them alive, to make them born again, and then to heal them, to actually cleanse them and sanctify them from that sin. Isaiah has already told us in chapter 53 that this is what Christ was accomplishing on the cross. Jesus healed our wounds by taking on wounds of his own. He washed away our transgressions by bearing them himself. That is why he came as a servant not just to draw near to sinners, but to wash them, to make them new, to free them from the bonds of their slavery to sin, not just to eat with prostitutes and tax collectors, but then to take the wrath of God for them, to take their sins seriously so much so that he absorbs the full penalty for their sin, so that when God's judgment comes for all the earth, these sinners can say, I have trusted in Christ. I have rejected my sin. I have faith with him, and I find refuge now in God, not in my idols, 
I rest now in Christ. Isaiah's promise that God draws near to proclaim peace to those who are near and far. Yes, that speaks to the extent of our sin, but it also speaks to how far from God we seemed. Yes, to those who had gone far away to obtain the favor of kings, but then Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians to say that God is coming to save those wicked foreigners themselves. God wasn't just looking to save Jews who had compromised themselves with wicked Gentiles. He was looking forward to the salvation of Gentiles. Not just to those who had given in to the worship of Moloch. God had come to save the builders of Moloch's temples. God had come to save the brothel workers. Those who had sacrificed their children. The priests of false religions. He had come and died to heal them and make them new. So that God could draw near even to them. And so that they also, we also, no matter who we are or where we are from or what we have done can be contrite, can reject our sin, can trust in Christ and find refuge in him and inherit the eternal city of Zion over which he rules. So there is no good running from God's rebuke. There is no good in saying that it shouldn't apply to you. There is no good to deciding that you're going to continue to hide your sin and explain it away. Isaiah has sought to drastically expose us to our sin and its consequences so that you would then humble yourself and seek refuge in God. God wants you to recognize his anger towards sin. If you do not see sin as God does, you will not see grace as God does. If you do not recognize your sin as he does, if you do not understand his right to punish it, then you will not really repent of it. You will not really desire forgiveness for it. And you will see grace as something that you should not receive, as something you don't even want. So God exposes us to his anger. He wants to wake you up to his anger towards sin. He wants you to feel it, even maybe experience it just enough so that you can hear that if you trust in him, he will not contend forever. He will not be angry at you unto death if you humble yourself. In fact, then his anger has become a gift of grace to wake you up to salvation. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. The author of Hebrews refers to the fruit of the lips as the sacrifice of praise, the true worship of God, pure spiritual worship that will be reflected in a life living wholly for God's glory. So even for this backslider, the one who claimed to be a part of God's people, who claimed to love God, but was pursuing foreign idols and loving secret sin, even to them, God says he can use his anger to awaken them so that they would humble themselves and repent. He promises them that then his anger will not lead to death. And when they are contrite, he will heal them and create true, actual spiritual worship in them. Not shallow, hypocritical surface worship to impress your friends. A true heart of worship where there was once only lying religion. 
God doesn't save sinners to leave them in sin. No one who recognizes their sin would want that. He frees us from the power of sin. He revives us. He heals us, which is to say he makes us new. He makes us like himself. He puts pure spiritual worship in us. That is a promise, both to the slave to sin who never heard the gospel before and also a promise to the backslider who realizes that they have been hypocritically pretending to worship God while they've given their affection to idols. To both of them, God says, Jesus drew near to sinners and bore their sin and wrath so that God can revive them and heal them. Jesus rose from the dead so that at God's judgment, you can take refuge in him and have new life in the everlasting kingdom of Zion. That's God's promise to you. Whether you are fully immersed in the sin of the world, maybe recognizing that there's no peace here, but are feeling hopeless about freeing yourself from its power, or whether you are that backslider, hiding your sin, excusing it, the promise is the same. Do not protect your pride. Do not hold on to idols in the face of your sin until you are blown away at God's judgment. Humble yourself and repent and see how Jesus has drawn near to you that you would be made new and cleansed and healed. God doesn't need you to prove you're good enough. He doesn't want you to fix your own problems. Certainly not to lie and pretend that everything is fine. That thinking will leave you rejecting salvation like the Pharisees. Confess your sin. Take refuge in God. And see that Jesus drew near to us so that God will draw near to you. He says to you today, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Repent of your life chasing after the affections of this world, take refuge in God. And to you then, he says, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Or as Jesus rephrases it, the meek shall inherit the earth. Let's be shocked by sin so that we can really understand the righteousness of God's judgment. And then, so that we can be astounded by grace. God offers us in Jesus. Let's be brought low by sin so that Jesus can lift us up in his grace. Let's reject the false refuge we are taking in the idols which will be blown away so that we can find eternal refuge in Jesus, in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sin is terrible. The way that we have rebelled against a perfect holy God Father, may we recognize that sin even to see how it is worthy of eternal damnation. May we see how vile it is to have given our affections to the things of this world. May we see how what seemed to us as small compromises, things we had to do for the sake of pleasure or living our best life, how those are wicked acts of rebellion against you, not so that we would be left in despair. Father, if we would despair of sin, then I pray that you would show us the amazing glory of the gospel the sweetness of the grace of Jesus. How far he came, down from his throne, down to to take the form of a servant, to die on a cross for us, so that we who have committed such horrible rebellion can be reconciled to you. And I pray then that those who are broken by their sin would confess it, run from it, be contrite, 
humble and meek, not defending themselves, not proud, but running to you for refuge. And I pray that there they would find refuge and peace and rest in the salvation of Jesus, that we might give all glory to him for the salvation that we could never have accomplished or deserved. In his name we pray, amen.